0: So the stay-at-home order is still pretty much in place in California. You know, a few places are open and kind of. uh, But most religious institutions, churches, mosques, temples, have uh, continued to stay closed. And uh, rightfully so. It's really hard to stay socially distant in temples. So IBMC has stayed closed uh, since the stay-at-home orders first began in, I think, what, March now? So I haven't been able to give any Dharma talks there since then. Uh, I did give a talk, well, actually two talks, uh, a couple days ago uh, on, I think it was Sunday. Was it Sunday this week or last week? Man, all the days are blurring together. Uh, but I gave a couple talks to uh, a Dharma school. On Zoom. So that was actually pretty fun. I got to lead a small, maybe five, six-minute meditation and give a, a talk to uh, two groups. One was uh, children under, like, 12 and under, and the other was uh, children 13 and up, so teenagers. That was interesting, and I thought about recording those ones to see if they were, you know, uh, worth putting up. But I, I decided that day not to record them and just to to focus on on giving a good talk to the kids, and uh, it went pretty well. It, it was funny watching the the younger kids meditate because, you know, you could see some, you know, maybe seven, eight, nine, ten, even taking it pretty seriously you know they're sitting in their computer chairs closing their eyes listening to the instructions and then you had other couple kids really not caring eyes open not even meditating one of them was eating ice cream you know <laughs> it was it was pretty funny to watch that uh and you know the talks I, I kept it simple you know uh, for the for the younger kids I I revisited my my talk uh, on Rahula's first lesson with the Buddha, uh, but geared more towards a, a younger audience. I think that's a, I think that's a really good one for for kids to to learn and and that's the, a good foundation for children to base their practice on as as young Buddhists, looking at morality, looking at um, you know actions and their consequences, and and thinking about. Uh, what's wholesome and unwholesome, skillful and unskillful what causes harm to oneself and others so that I felt that was a, a pretty good one and I tried to to gear it towards that audience and then the second one I talked about uh, self-image and social media especially since a lot of the high school kids you know they're they're out of school now and you know, a lot of them are having to stay at home in one way or another. So I'm sure they're online a bunch more be that Twitter or Instagram or TikTok, whatever it is they're using. And, uh, you know, that the whole fear of missing out sort of stuff and, and views on, on appearances and the way people live and, you know, self-esteem and stuff. And so I thought that one went pretty well. Um, but like I said, I, I geared them towards a, a younger audience and yeah, you that know, just it seemed better to just leave it for them and, and they seemed to get something out of it. Don't really know about the teenagers. Uh, it was weird because all the teenagers decided to have their cameras off. Uh the the nun who runs the Dharma school was telling me that, you know, they're a bit shy, they you know, they used to be more open when they were younger. So I don't know how engaged they were. But, uh, the younger kids had had their cameras on and, you know, you had varying levels of engagement, which is good. So what I thought I'd talk about today are the Jhanas, uh, because if, if there's one thing that I think is greatly misunderstood nowadays, uh, both in the West and the East, not even the East gets, gets, uh, you know, gets off free from, from this one. Um, it's the Jhanas, the, the way we misunderstand them and the way that, um, they've been really misunderstood for centuries, really. And, uh, and so I thought I'd do that, you know, I, I'll, I'll be honest with you guys. I really don't know how, um, entertaining, uh, <laughs> this, this talk will be, but, um, I, I do think that it's an important topic to address and something that I mean if, if you can have the, the right view about this it will transform your meditation because really the the jhanas I mean over the course of centuries but certainly within the last hundred years have been, have been greatly uh, mystified and taught to be entirely esoteric and taught to be optional, uh, which I think is even more dangerous and um, really of like no consequence or importance Um, and it's been set aside uh, in favor of what's known as like dry insight or dry mindfulness, you know, meditation without any quote concentration or um, you know, samadhi uh, concentration as taught as something different than the jhanas which again can get tricky because then whatever small amount of concentration that you have for your, quote, mindfulness practice is enough. And, uh, yeah, I, I think that's a bit misguided. And so if I can dispel that, you know, uh, make, it uh, make it less esoteric, make it less, rather, less esoteric, and if I can make it less uh, mysterious um, and, you know, mystified, then I, then I think that's, that's for the best. Uh, Because, quite honestly, jhana is not advanced states of meditation. The jhanas, the four, you know, what are known as the rupa jhanas, um, and even the arupa, the, the formless jhanas, are just progressive stages of meditation, not advanced states of meditation. And so if we can look at meditation... As something more singular in the Buddhist context and see it as having a progression, I think that's better that's better in terms of looking at the jhanas than as these advanced states that that one can achieve, but they're not uh, essential you know for me it, it would be very strange to think about the Buddhist teachings you know where he would actually teach something that you know you can you can you can take it or leave it it's not that important. I I can't imagine the the Buddha teaching that way, especially when you think about, uh, you know, what he called his handful of leaves, that there were other teachings that he thought were inconsequential, like other truths, rather. And he set those truths aside to focus on the ones that would lead to dispassion and lead to liberation. So why then would, would he teach the jhanas as this like, well, maybe if you want. You know, there are a lot of passages in the Suttas where the Buddha defines right concentration as the four jhanas, what are known as like the the form jhanas, the rupa jhanas. But those four jhanas, that's what he, he describes as right concentration. It's pretty popular nowadays to think that right concentration is something different than the jhanas. Uh partially because of texts like the Visuddhimagga that have painted the jhanas as very hard to achieve, as these completely rarefied states where once you enter them, uh, once you enter them, the, the senses completely shut off and uh, you're, you're in this very heightened state of what most people call now one-pointedness. And, uh, you know, painted in such a way of, of course it seems hard to achieve. And then on top of that, this focus on mindfulness being more important than concentration when, I mean, those are both important aspects of meditation. Um, you know, and, and, and to say that, that concentration takes a back seat to, uh, to mindfulness, I, I think is, is very wrong. And, you know a lot of this comes down to the you know the assertion in the in the that the buddha taught two types of meditation vipassana and samatha and samatha is basically jhana and vipassana is the the true way to achieve uh, liberation which is you know marked by its insight its mindfulness and you know so much of this has been muddied over the years and and people have taught varying theories, and honestly, you know, I I think it's best to, and I think it's best to look at these vipassana and samatha as two aspects of one practice. And that doesn't mean that there's only one object of of meditation, that's clearly not the case, there can be different objects, but the absorptions, which is how some people translate uh, the jhanas as absorptions, the absorptions are the same these progressive stages of meditation and you know the the whole idea of of one pointedness i think is why the jhanas seem to be so impossible so hard to do you know because one pointedness the way it's been understood you have to let everything drop away and only focus on one thing all other thoughts have to fall away and all other sense perceptions have to fall away, and there is this only this one thing at this one focal point, you know, whether that be an image, you know, a candle or some type of mandala or you know the tip of the nose and breathing, and it's just this one part of the body and it's it's focused it's a hyper focused, and you know the, you 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 look at it, at things so minutely. You know, that that seems uh, not necessarily unattainable, because there seem to be plenty of people who act as if they have been able to do that. And I guess we should take them at their word that, you know, that's what they're, you know, experiencing, perceiving. But that doesn't seem to line up with what I've, I've read about the jhanas, what I've learned from other teachers that are based in the early discourses, the early teachings and certainly not what i've seen in my practice as i've switched to what these other teachers have taught when i was learning from teachers that did hold the vasudhi maga and other texts and those kind of teachings uh in high regard my concentration was always really muddled you know i i i, I never really felt like like i was experiencing what I was reading in the suttas. It it just didn't make any sense. And when I would read the suttas and see stuff in regard to mindfulness and concentration and vipassana and samatha and all that, it wasn't lining up with what I was being taught and how I was being taught to practice. But then when I did find teachers that taught it as a a complete system, as one meditation with mindfulness and concentration, and concentration being something altogether different than one pointedness, something changed in my meditation. And and something changed in the way I approached not only meditation, but the entire Buddhist path. Which is why I think it's so important to talk about this. Why why more people who who uh have seen this in the suttas and seen this in their practices should speak up. And in all honesty, I'm I'm not the only one talking about these things and not the only one teaching these things, and scholars are starting to be more vocal about this in their journals, their articles, books, and so on, and and teaching in this way. And more Buddhist teachers are also teaching this way, but uh, we're still uh, a, min- a minority. Uh, you know, a, a vocal one and a growing one, but still a minority. But in any case, uh, I wanted to shift focus on concentration as one-pointedness because that's something I, I think that has also done a lot of damage and you know, the the basis for this is pretty strange too um, in, in Pali the the term that's translated as one-pointedness is ekagata and ekagata uh, can also be translated a couple different ways um some people have translated this not as one-pointedness but one-pointedness rather but uh sometimes as uh unification of mind uh collectedness of mind um stillness of mind and and i think each one of those is substantially better than one-pointedness Um, I I tend to favor either unification of mind or stillness of mind. And the reason why this matters is because Ekagatha, or or one-pointedness is the way people translate it now, is seen as a synonym for concentration. And... This becomes problematic, too, even for those who recognize concentration as being synonymous uh, with jhana. Now, some people don't see concentration as synonymous with jhana. Some people see jhana as a kind of right concentration, but there being another kind of right concentration that can be achieved without, quote, jhana. And one is able to become a stream-enter and beyond without ever uh, practicing jhana practice and again i think this is very very strange this whole whole dry insight uh concept because even when you look at what jhana is jhana is meditation jhana or in in sanskrit dhyana is the word for meditation so anytime we're meditating that is samadhi that is concentration and we've we've really gone often in a, a completely different direction to think that concentration is something different than meditation or just an aspect of meditation. Concentration is meditation. Jhana is meditation. Samadhi is meditation. And so that means that when we're looking at the four jhanas, we're not looking at these rarefied states achieved through meditation. We're finding progressive states or stages of meditation. Saying that meditation changes in this kind of upward trajectory. And I think that that makes a lot more logical sense. And and when, when one approaches meditation that way, it means that the jhanas are much more accessible, especially the first jhana. Rapture and bliss, born of seclusion accompanied by directed thought and sustained thought, or directed thought and evaluation, however you want to translate, Vitaka Vichata. But there we go. Here is something that seems very attainable. Jhana 1. Jhana 2, rapture and bliss born of concentration. That meaning that, you know, the the initial stages of meditation are more of the Jhana 1 territory, and then a a much deeper, more uh, blissful, and tranquil state of meditation in jhana 2, and so on. You know, a lot of people don't like to talk about the jhanas this way, because jhana 1 is supposed to be so incredibly difficult to achieve, and then so much more so for the second, third, and fourth jhana. And yet, if you look at the Anapanasati, you could see in just the first tetrad, That's already the basis enough for the first jhana. Just by by focusing on the breath, the in-breath and out-breath, long, short, deep, shallow, bringing awareness to the entire body, and then calming the entire body. That already, just in that first tetrad, is enough for the first jhana. And you can see how that wouldn't line up with, with one pointedness. You know, I, I think that's that's one thing that has been uh, deeply misconstrued, uh, you know, to the detriment of people. Even for myself, you know, when I thought of, of concentration as one pointedness, and I was reading instructions by people that said I had to focus on the tip of my nose or on my diaphragm and, and, and leave all else and have no thoughts or sense perceptions at the very beginning to have any hope of entering Jhana, you know, I found that not only discouraging, but, you know, impossible, and more, moreover, stressful, because there's a type of tightness, a type of, uh, of stress involved in trying to just focus on one point and exclude all else. I remember feeling the the little signs of stress in the body, the the tension that would build up as I tried to focus on this one point. And when I had a teacher that allowed me to open up that awareness to the entire body instead, to allow the mind to rest collectedly, in a still way on awareness of the whole body breathing, that changed so much for me. That really allowed me to, to find something restful and peaceful, pleasurable, something that was enjoyable, something that made me want to meditate. And, and isn't that the point? Shouldn't we want to meditate? Why do so many meditation teachers, you know, in these various traditions that, that try to really force down this dry insight, teach it as this thing that you just struggle through and you just do it anyway and it sucks and it's awful, but that's the way it's got to be, you know, that's what they teach. And yet there's this much more pleasurable way to meditate, this more restful, calmful, easeful way of meditating that opens you up to something that you actually want to do, that becomes your your home your oasis your island that allows you to to put aside the defilements to put aside the hindrances that's actually conducive to the path because it it gives you a taste of what nibbana will be like what liberation will be like it's a little taste and and you get that that assurance that's what turns faith into conviction and confidence because you start to see what it's like to put aside the hindrances and put aside the defilements in meditation so meditation has to be something enjoyable and something that can rest in an easy way that stillness of mind and we see that already within the first tetrad of Anapanasati mindfulness of breathing and we see that mindfulness and concentration are tools Right, We see that there are tools to lead to this type of dispassion that allow us to steady the mind. That that's what meditation is. You know, uh, a lot of people, when they look at the Eightfold Path, agree that what we call meditation is made up of right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And it's it's weird to see that people emphasize the mindfulness part and say that right effort and right concentration are in the service of mindfulness. And I beg to differ. I think that right effort and right mindfulness are in service to right concentration, that they're in service to the jhanas. And I would even say further that the entire eightfold path can be conceived in that way. That right concentration, or just right meditation, right samadhi, right meditation, has these supports in the rest of the Eightfold Path. That right view, right resolve, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, and right mindfulness, those are the supports to concentration, samadhi, that is not a kind of one-pointedness where you only focus on this one thing to the exclusion of all else but a type of of restful uh, awareness and understanding of the entire body and mind that that's that one point not this one little not this one little tip of of the nose or this one little aspect of the mind but a, a grander awareness of the entire body and mind of of the entire six sense bases, that that fat the fathom long body that the, the Buddha is talking about that that, that is our, our one point to the extent that there that there is a point. And that, for me, is profound. When when I made that shift in thinking, it really allowed me to to get. Deep into my meditation, and you know, I I did away with a lot of these other views in regard to the jhanas as well. The idea that in meditation there's supposed to be no thinking at all, and by the time you get to the jhanas, absolutely no thinking, other than the the bare awareness of of your meditation object, um, or even uh, no sensations that the entire Sense of the body dissolves away, and yet, if if we look at the at the distinctions between form jhanas, rupa jhanas, and formless arupa jhanas, that's the whole point of the arupa jhanas that they're formless and that there is no sense of the body. And even that may or may not be debatable, but for the at the, at the very least, we can we can talk in those gener- generalities. We can talk generally about that. Generally speaking, the rupa jhanas are in regard to the physical body and the sensations thereof, including the mind, and the arupa jhanas do not have those physical sensations, and there may or may not be different. Um, there there may or may not be uh, the awareness of mind or mental states, depending on which arupa which are all themselves those arupajana, born of the fourth jhana. But in any case, setting aside that view allowed me to, to understand that I was going through progressive stages of meditation through awareness of the six sense bases, body and mind. And that at the initial stage of meditation, jhana one, there is thought, that we don't have to completely shut down our mind, that vitakka vichara. Directed thought and evaluation are conducive thoughts to meditation. It doesn't mean that any thought'll do. You're not thinking about you know ice cream and you're not thinking about your favorite roller coaster you're not thinking about the the cliffhanger at a season four of whatever show you've been watching no the the type of directed thought and evaluation is in regard to your meditation object in regard in regard to the dhamma in regard to to uh, laying aside the defilements and the hindrances in regard to looking at, at wholesome and unwholesome states, kusala, a kusala. And that's, that's the mental activity that happens in jhana 1. That's why there can be mental activity, directed thought and evaluation, that are cast aside as you no longer need them. As the mind settles, becomes more collected, becomes more still... you're able to cast aside those kinds of thoughts and then focus more on the on the objects, focus more on different sensations, feelings of rapture and bliss, feelings of, of peace, of fullness. And there may be thoughts involved there too, but the thoughts begin to quiet down. So that by the time you get to the fourth jhana, there may or may not be those type of thoughts, certainly not directed thought, an evaluation, but even still, to say there are absolutely no thoughts, zero thoughts, uh, I still disagree with with that notion. That in in every aspect of of the jhanas, there is some type of a of assessment being made, some type of of job duty, let's say, done by the mind to you know look at the experiences and and learn from them. You know, we often talk about Buddhism uh, in regard to, uh, you know, cause and effect. But when it comes to the thoughts in the mind and sensations in the body, we, we no longer look at the causality. The way, we teach, the way we teach people to evaluate their thoughts is to simply be aware of thoughts and to watch their arising. And, uh, you know, this, this has a basis in the suttas, kind of, in that there is this term that has been translated as arising. So you look at the arising of phenomena. But there's another way of translating this, which I think is more accurate, where it's not just looking at the arising, but looking at the origination of phenomena. In other words, looking at its causality, looking at why things happen the way they do. So an example might be uh, thoughts of anger you know if if you're kind of an angry person which I definitely have been in the past and it's still one of those things that I continue to work on. I think a lot of us have various you know emotions and mental states that we we work on. Anger has been one of mine and we can look at anger in that way if if we just take this this bare awareness attitude that is that is has been made popular, then you just Look at the anger, like, ooh, there it is, and then the anger starts going away. Oh, all right, now it's going away. But what you can do instead is look at anger in terms of causality. What's the origination of this angry thought? Why is it there? How is it there? There's an an actual attempt to understand the anger and to see how it manifests in the mind because. because of cause and effect it doesn't come out of nowhere when we talk about things arising it seems to be in a very spontaneous way a kind of amorphous way but when we look at things in terms of causality then we see that ah yes we see that there is a reason something has come to be in the mind Something has emerged because it's been caused. It didn't simply just arise out of nothing. So I do think that um, we should stop looking at Jhanas as mystical, unattainable things. Uh, Certainly Jhana 1. We should view it more as... Just progressive stages of of meditation where there are st- there's still awareness of the senses and the outside world. If a if an ambulance goes by, you're gonna hear it. If a you know a bug, some kind of fly or a mosquito lands on your arm, you're gonna feel it. You know uh, if there's a thought in the mind, it's gonna be there, and you're gonna have thoughts. And in fact, a part of first jhana is directing your thoughts and evaluating both thoughts and sensations in a particular way. We'll be better off if we view it like that. And further, whether we're talking about samadhi or talking about jhanas, viewing them as one-pointedness may not be as helpful as we think. That one-pointedness in terms of everything else shutting down and shutting off uh, will be discouraging because very and it's very likely we're not going to experience those things and just assume we're doing it wrong or somehow bypass the Rupa Jhanas, end up in the A-Rupa Jhanas, and think we're in the Four, the four Jhanas, Rupa Jhanas, uh, which I do think might happen maybe for some people, that they go off into some concentration where they really experience nothing, you know, perception it's a perception, neither perception nor non-perception or you know, formlessness of like a, you know, expansiveness of mind, all these different terms and I'm sure I'm muddling up a bunch of them, but in any case, there are these types of uh, what we might call um, wrong concentration or perhaps circumvented concentration where we really do shut things down and then we're just gone for a bit uh, you know <laughs> there, there are some people who teach the jhanas that way, that once you enter the first jhana all types of thought and mental activity go away so you simply cease experiencing anything or have, a, have an awareness of anything until you come out of, of jhana the idea being that you look at the clock and it's 10.30 And then you enter into meditation, get into 1st Jhana or 2nd Jhana or whatever Jhana. And then, poof, it's 1130. And there's been no awareness of the passage of time. There have been no thoughts, no uh, sense experiences. If someone walked into the room, you wouldn't have been aware of it. And, And you're just completely cut off. And you know what? If I thought Jhana was that I wouldn't be encouraging it. I wouldn't. I certainly wouldn't be trying to cultivate that. That's not something that I would think of as uh, conducive to awakening or as essential. And if I thought jhana was that, I would be teaching like a lot of other teachers are now, that the jhanas are not necessary. But because I think there's another way of looking at the jhanas, another way of you know reaching these states and rather reaching these stages of meditation then yes jhanas are important are necessary and there's a lot of evidence for why concentration just is the jhanas in which case it's a path factor right concentration meaning that our meditation is the jhanas that that's what we are tasked with doing that is our duty to To meditate, and when we meditate correctly, it has these type of qualities that we find in the jhanas. And uh, you know, I, I know a lot of people aren't going to like it. Um, I, I see a lot of people debate this online a lot lately, and it's it's not really my desire to enter into the debate. You know, if if you if you have learned from teachers who uh, taught very heavily from the Visuddhimaga, which, you know, a lot of people have Uh, a lot of people in, in the insight and Vipassana traditions, that's pretty much where they're getting their understanding of, of meditation and their understanding of Jhana as this, you know, um, optional, not necessary and very hard to achieve thing. Then, you know, I, I get it. It's, it's, it's not my, my job to tell you you're wrong for thinking that, um, I I only know my own experience, and and what I've been studying, what I've been learning from other teachers, what I have been practicing, and what has actually made a change, a, a transformation in me, and and so yeah, that's that's uh <laughs> that's that's pretty much what I what I've got to say on on the topic. I mean, I, I could say more uh but I mean I think if you've been if you've continued if you've actually listened all the way through to the end and and you're still here then you got the gist of the message go meditate and meditation's just jhana it, it makes a lot of people annoyed I, I said this online to someone the other day because this was someone who said that you can't possibly be in jhana and hear a Dharma talk not possible you can't be in jhana and walk around, right? Cuz jhana is uh, shutting off of the senses and of the mind. You, you have no volition, you can't take a step. So you you have no no other uh recourse in jhana other than to sit, be in a seated position with with eyes closed and everything because the senses are shut off. And I said, I don't know. I think jhana 1 has a lot of that stuff going on. I think there's there's good evidence of of people having been and at least, uh, just the first jhana. Uh, you know, once you get to, like, fourth, I think stuff is, is so still. I don't think anyone's going for a jog and fourth jhana or anything like that. But I do think that first jhana, because of, of the qualities there, because of Rapture and Bliss being born of seclusion and, you know, bitaka bichata, you know, directed thought and evaluation being there. there, there is a, a lot of mental activity there that we can see that first jhana might... We might slide into it in a more uh, accessible way than we've been led to believe, and so when I when I point that out, yeah, some people don't like it. They 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 wanna they wanna argue with me about it, and uh, I don't know. It, if uh, if you disagree with me, eh, it's okay. the The important part when we disagree with other Buddhists and disagree with any any other religious people or spiritual people any type of meditator or contemplative or mystic whatever the important thing is to not get caught up in what the buddha called a thicket of views you know any time we decide to start debating and philosophizing and and arguing with people we disagree with we get more entrenched in our views and that's detrimental to the practice because then then we become defensive now we're arguing for something or against something and at that point we're not practicing the main point is that we should be meditating and if we meditate in the right way we're able to to set aside the defilements even if only temporarily to set aside the hindrances to nurture wholesome mental qualities. Because that's that's what meditation is, you know, it's it's mental cultivation. Chitta bhavana. So if if we're doing that, you know, it's good practice. Other stuff may or may not be split in hairs. I don't know. I know a lot of scholars debate this stuff and I get caught up in it too sometimes. But if I can make jhanas seem more accessible I think that's actually a good thing. And if you've been practicing for a while and you've been struggling to get into these jhanas as, as they've been taught to you by other teachers, then it might help to, to change your perspective on it, to see it as something more accessible and to be more forgiving and accepting of your meditation, that thoughts don't necessarily need to be bad, and if you're not completely shut off from the world and you're actually experiencing stuff through your senses, then maybe that's okay. Because there are plenty of examples in the suttas where people say like Mogalana, Maha, Maha Mughalana, you know, experiencing certain sounds and sensations in, in deep absorptions, absorptions where they're not, you know, people aren't supposed to feel anything supposedly, you know, supposedly. And yet they do. So anyway, I hope this was helpful. Uh, I hope that I was able to offer a different perspective. Something that can change the dialogue a bit, maybe. Just even a little bit. I don't know, if I'm being honest. But I have thought about... uh, Teaching this this different way a bit more, you know, actually teaching people uh, meditation the way I've I've been practicing it for a while now. Looking at anapanasati as not a concentrative practice solely, not a mindfulness practice solely, but looking at it as I was saying that right samadhi, sama samadhi, it just is meditation. And it has its supports, including right effort and right mindfulness. And so a practice like Anapanasati has Vipassana, insight, and Samatha, tranquility, as qualities of just good, right, true meditation. And so Anapanasati for me, as one way of meditating, as one particular object, is not the only object we can have people have quite successfully meditated with say the um, Brahma Vihadas or any other object that we might come across in the Suttas but we do see that there is this perspective we can have with whichever object we choose and we can see the, the right development of concentration Samadhi As not being something different from mindfulness, but rather something that is supported by mindfulness. Anyway, enough out of me. Uh, I will say, though, that if uh, you are curious about meditating in this way, I, I have been giving some thought to putting together a meditation group during this quarantine because... It seems like we're going to be living out the rest of the year like this, and I'm not really sure when I'll get back to IBMc. I, I haven't been uh, given the the thumbs up to to come visit. I think everyone's still staying, uh, a, you know, home and and safe and distant, as they should be. But like a lot of people, I'm I'm missing my my religious and spiritual community, and like a lot of people, uh, seeking it out online, and we have resources like Zoom now, so why not? You know, Facebook Live and all these other options that are coming up. Zoom now has more competition, let's say. Uh, But I have given some thought to putting together a a weekly meditation group. Uh, I'm not really sure what the interest is, because I know there's a lot of groups out there already, so, uh, you know, I wouldn't want to conflict too much with other groups, but I thought... Given that I have uh, an alternate perspective, uh, a different one that I, I think is is very helpful, it might do some good to put together something, you know, a, a weekly uh, meditation and, and talk to, to help people. And so if that is something that you're interested in, I'm still trying to figure out which day of the week would be best. So if I have any uh, avid listeners out there, let's say, who would like to meet up on Zoom or any other comparable service once a week and you have a time and day that works best for you, uh, send me an email. My email is suboda at suburbandharma.org and if you don't know how suboda is spelled, I don't blame you, but it is spelled S U B O D H A. And that is at SuburbanDharma.org. You are also welcome to uh, friend me on Facebook. I do have a Facebook page, but I don't really like how uh, Facebook really, really tries to get you to pay for advertising and stuff so that you're actually seen if you run a page. So I think it's best just to friend me on Facebook. And so if you type in on Facebook... uh, Steven, Sobota, Nunez, all pop right up. Go ahead and send me a friend request, no big deal. My, my whole profile is public anyway. And uh, that way you can message me and, and let me know what you think. You can also contact me through uh, my website, SuburbanDharma.org. I have a contact page with a contact form. And it'd be great if I got a message there, other than the spam bots that are always trying to sell me on different stuff. Uh, So that's also another option. If you're interested in joining my my weekly meditation group, let me know. That way I can start planning it out. See if, you know, maybe maybe Sunday works best for some people. Maybe Tuesday, you know, whatever day of the week. Be it evening or morning or something. And that way we can get a good group together and start practicing Anapanasati together. Alone, at home, quarantined. In any case, I'm going to wrap things up because I have been recording this in my car and I'm tired of being in my car without the air conditioner on. And, uh, yeah. Be well, everyone. Be safe. Be happy. Peaceful. Free from stress and suffering. I will talk to you all again soon. Take care.